Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. And the protests of racial inequality have been heard from Kenosha, Wisconsin to Rochester, New York. And the economic impacts of COVID-19 from job losses to business closures have disproportionately affected black Americans as much as the virus itself has. Even the last resort, the lifeline of bankruptcy, may not be equipped to give black debtors a fresh start. My guest is Michelle Dickerson, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin Law School and an early researcher on race and bankruptcy. Michelle, dozens of academic studies show that blacks file for bankruptcy more than any other racial group, yet get less permanent relief. Can you explain why that is? There are a number of reasons why that may be happening. The reason I phrase the answer that way is because the studies themselves weren't able to pinpoint exactly why that is occurring. But one thing that we're seeing painfully during COVID right now is that blacks in this country, for a whole host of reasons, many because of systemic racism, profile worse financially. Lower savings rates, lower household income, higher student loan rates. So it's not terribly surprising that blacks would have higher filing rates. One of the academic studies a few years ago suggested that blacks were being steered into Chapter 13, which is a bankruptcy plan where you repay your bills, or at least some of your bills, over a five-year period, as opposed to Chapter 7, which is a much quicker and easier process. So to the extent that blacks profile as more financially fragile, and then they're pushed into Chapter 13 and told, try to repay your bills, that would explain, at least for me, why you have more blacks filing, but fewer blacks actually getting the relief that bankruptcy is in theory supposed to provide. Why do you think blacks are being steered to Chapter 13 if Chapter 7 would work better for them? Again, I'll say this: the studies were not able to say why. Lots of theories, and again, they're just theories. One theory could be that the bankruptcy professionals whether we're talking about lawyers or trustees or judges, may have concluded that somehow Chapter 13 is better for blacks than Chapter 7. That makes no sense because at least for the academic studies, the one that was done about five or six years ago, actually probably closer to 10 now, it certainly seemed as if whites were being steered away from Chapter 13 and to Chapter 7, whereas blacks were being steered to Chapter 13 and away from Chapter 7. Whether racial biases are playing a role, we don't know, at least we don't know from the studies, but it is hard to imagine why it would be deemed better for blacks to 
pay their bills, but not for whites to attempt to repay their bills. So for those who are not in the know, would you explain a little more about the differences between Chapter 13 and Chapter 7 and why more people actually get out of bankruptcy with Chapter 7? Yes. Chapter 7 is a much quicker process to sort of, you know, phrase it colloquially. This is not what the bankruptcy code says, but essentially the debtor says, look, I don't have much property that I'm trying to keep. I want this to be a quick and simple process. Here's the little property that you are allowed to get as creditors that the code says I don't get to keep. Take the little amount that you're allowed to get creditors and discharge my debt. So it's a quick process. In contrast, Chapter 13, even if it is successful and the success rates are not great in terms of the number of people that actually make all of the payments over a five-year period, but Chapter 13 can last for up to five years. That's a very different process and a very different thing also psychologically because effectively in Chapter 13, you have to be able to get, I am going to be able to repay a certain percentage of my bills over a five-year period, not knowing, am I going to have the same job in five years? I mean, imagine if people had entered into a Chapter 13 plan in November of 2019, only to have COVID hit and they lose their jobs. Well, COVID obviously is sort of the once-in-a-lifetime, at least we hope, economic and health pandemic, but for lots of people, blacks and other sort of middle-income, lower-income workers, there isn't great stability in terms of their employment. So the notion that you can commit right now that you know you're going to be able to make a certain amount of plan payments over the next five years is, given our current economic climate, an unrealistic expectation. There's been a lot of talk about systemic racism in the justice system. Is there a racist element in the U.S. Bankruptcy Code? Intentional? No. But if you look at the way the code is structured for human beings that file for bankruptcy, there are clear biases. And it just so happens that those biases favor a certain profile, which I have called in the past the ideal debtor. So if you are a homeowner and you want to be able to restructure your debt to keep your home, bankruptcy is a good thing. But when you look at the differences in the homeownership rate for whites, blacks, and Latinos, that favors whites because whites are more likely to own homes than blacks or Latinos. If you look at other things like the type of property that you're allowed to keep, um, intangible property, like a retirement, a pension. Well, if you look at the pension participation rate, whites are disproportionately likely to have both an employer-provided pension and also private savings through an IRA. So the code has this model of who they think the debtor is that is deserving of protection in bankruptcy. And when they created the provisions to protect certain types of debtors, a certain debtor was in mind, and that debtor is not a typical Black or Latino American. There's been a lot of news about how COVID-19 has disproportionately hit 
the black community as far as number of cases. But it's also hit the black community more harshly than whites economically. So during the pandemic, 41% of black-owned businesses closed compared to 17% of white-owned businesses. How do you account for that? That's a huge difference. Well, one thing, and this isn't sort of a, um, a bankruptcy response, but one thing that happened is when at the very beginning of the PPP, the loan uh, program, there were lots of problems as we all painfully saw um, a play out, uh, certainly in the media. And if you're a small um, sort of mom and pop or sole proprietor black business and you, do- and you didn't have a long-standing relationship with the lender, it was highly unlikely that you were going to get one of those loans. They tried to fix some of those problems in the second wave um, of the PPP loans. But the simple reality is that if you are someone that isn't uh, being favored by a lender and you weren't favored by a lender pre-COVID, then it was going to be hard for you to get those loans. And also, uh, there, there are some studies out there that uh, indicate that black businesses in general, notwithstanding all of the anti-discrimination laws, have a harder time getting access to capital and particularly to uh, low interest rate loans. So I was surprised to learn that personal bankruptcy filings have dropped rather than spiked during the pandemic, a big drop of 41%. Is that because people aren't getting to their lawyer's offices or is there you know, a reason why bankruptcy filings would have dropped? Well, there would be a, a, a host of reasons. And again, I'm, I'm somewhat speculating. First, you can't get to your lawyer's office. Second, your lawyer's offices or lawyer's offices are backed up. Um, but third, to the extent that someone is going to file for Chapter 13 and they have no income, there's really no reason to propose a plan when you know that you don't have a job and you won't be able to propose uh, any plan payment. So, I mean, it could be sort of a whole range of reasons why people haven't filed. It doesn't mean, of course, that there is not economic desperation that's out there. Um, and the other thing I would add is for some of those folks, it could also be that they have filed in the last few years and therefore they're not eligible to refile. But it is sort of a, a bit, um, it seems to be a bit of a disconnect that we're in this horrendous economic crisis, and yet bankruptcy filings are down. I will be surprised if they remain low, uh, but it is a bit shocking that they're still low now. There was some relief for those already in Chapter 13 from the CARES Act. They allowed you to modify your plans, extend the time of your Chapter 13 bankruptcy, things like that. Was there enough relief? So to the extent that you're going to extend and you have no income, the extension really doesn't help you. And also, one of the things that I have said repeatedly is bankruptcy works well if you have sort of a one-off problem. You know, you have an unexpected financial catastrophe and you can't afford to pay it. You file for bankruptcy, you're able to get that discharge. The problem that we're seeing now with America, certainly the middle class and also to some extent our lower income workers as well, is there is instability. And so even if you get an extension or if you're told you can file for bankruptcy, if you don't know that you are going to have any income 
to repay any bills in a Chapter 13 plan, there's no reason to file. And again, as I said earlier, the extension doesn't help you if you have no income to pay. Are there any solutions to help make bankruptcy a better prospect for black debtors? Well, I've been on a tear for the last couple of years. (laughs) One of the things that we don't know in bankruptcy is anything about race because they're not required to collect that data. And so the academic studies have been terrific, but these are professors who went about to collect the data. There's absolutely no reason that the administrative office can't say that bankruptcy courts, you know, as part of filing for bankruptcy, we need to have information about race because it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on in bankruptcy if we're not keeping track of what's going on in bankruptcy. And so if we want to know what's going on with respect to race, then we need to count it. And for example, if we then see that, you know, blacks are disproportionately, you know, three times as likely, I'm just making up a number here, three times as likely to be pushed into a more expensive, longer-term Chapter 13 than to be pushed into a shorter, cheaper Chapter 7, we can then go about asking the trustees' offices, the judges, the lawyers, why are you doing this? But one of the problems that we have right now is we don't have comprehensive data. That was another surprise, because it seems like every form you fill out, any official form, they ask about your race or ethnicity. So it's kind of odd that they don't ask that in the bankruptcy court. You can say odd. I hope it is not intentional. But certainly when we see what's going on now with the census and, you know, ending things early and the potential of an undercount, one wonders if no one wants to see the data. But there's absolutely no reason, you're right. I mean, every time we fill out a form about almost anything, they're asked, you know, what's your gender, what's your this, what's your race, but not in bankruptcy. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Michelle. That's Michelle Dickerson, a professor of bankruptcy law at the University of Texas at Austin Law School. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What would a President Biden mean for employers and employees, at least according to his policy initiatives? Well, if you live in California, you may already have a notion of what the legal landscape is likely to be. Joining me is employment law expert Anthony Onsidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. Give us an overview. Will changes in the Biden administration in employment laws benefit employers or employees? I think the changes that are proposed will overwhelmingly benefit employees, and in particular, labor unions. Many of the proposals fulfill a wish list that organized labor has had for many years, indeed in some cases decades, all of which are addressed in some way or another by the Biden proposals. So I guess by indirect association, employees will be benefited by that, but Principally, labor unions will be assisted and aided by much of the legislation that is proposed by the prospective Biden administration. Unions have been losing power 
for years. Even the Supreme Court has added to their woes. Is it even possible to dial that back? Well, that's really what much of this legislation looks like. It appears to be a rearguard action on the part of labor unions to try to at least hold on to the percentage of the workforce that they currently represent and perhaps even reverse the trend that has been going on since the 1950s, which has seen consistent reductions in the number and percentage of employees that are represented by labor unions. We are in a situation today in the United States where approximately 10% of the workforce is unionized. That's down from over 35% in the 1950s. And if you break down that 10% that exists today, that's only about 6.2% of the private sector and approximately a third of the public sector. So public employee unions are really quite robust still uh, in today's environment, but where unions have really lost ground is among private sector employers. What do you see as some of the most important changes that would directly affect unions? Sort of job one, if you will, of uh, the unions has been, and in fact this was true in the early years of the Obama administration, they tried to get this passed as well, something known as card check. The, the proposed legislation sometimes goes by the acronym EFCA, E-F-C-A which stands for the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, it's somewhat of an ironic name for it because really what it does is it eliminates <laughs> the need for elections in unionization campaigns. Today, what we have is if you have a, a non-unionized workforce, uh, the union needs to qualify to have an election, which is federally supervised and uh, by the National Labor Relations Board. And of course, if the union wins that election, the employer and the employees have the union and collective bargaining takes place. The Employee Free Choice Act approaches the situation somewhat differently. It allows union officials, organizers to get employees to sign uh, cards without there being any election, without there being any campaign. And if the union uh, can get enough cards, the majority of the workforce to sign these cards, uh, and of course, it's very difficult to tell what the circumstances under which uh, those cards are signed, that there could be threats, there could be promises that are unmonitored by the government, unmonitored by the employer. But if, if the union shows up with 50 plus, 50% plus one of those cards, the union exists. The union will then be subject to collective bargaining with the employer, and there will be no election. So although it's called the Employee Free Choice Act, in fact, employees will be deprived of the right to have an election in the event that 50% plus one cards are gotten by the union uh, behind the scenes, usually. What about right-to-work states? Will that concept uh, interfere? Most union policy uh, involving collective bargaining rights, etc., exists on the federal uh, level. But as a result of a law known as the Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed in the 1950s, uh, there is the right for and has been amended, there's the right for states to regulate some of the aspects of this. And approximately 27 states in the United States have what are called right-to-work laws. And essentially what they do is they um, prohibit so-called union security clauses. Union security clauses say that anybody who works 
uh, and gets a job in this workplace, whether they belong to the union or not, must pay union dues. And in those states, 27 or so, that have these right-to-work laws, that kind of provision is illegal. One of the proposals in the Biden plan is to make it illegal for states to have right-to-work laws, meaning that these union security clauses will once again return to all states and that no state will be able to have uh, a different policy with respect to not recognizing the obligation of an employee, whether he or she is a member of the union or not, to pay union dues. And that will be obviously a significant impact, primarily in the Midwest and in many southern states that have these right-to-work laws. Diversity and inclusion in the workplace have been issues for some time now. How would a Biden administration promote those policies? It's interesting. I I practice in California, and many of the proposals in the Biden plan come almost directly from the laws and the policies that exist here in California, for better or worse. One of the uh, primary tenets of the uh, Biden plan is something called the Paycheck Fairness Act which would enact on the federal level, so therefore it would apply to all states, a sort of supercharged uh, bill that would address wage disparity on the basis of sex. Uh, Both California and New York already have fairly robust laws uh, with respect to this issue, uh, and this would, again, federalize that so that it would apply in all um, jurisdictions. What it would do, among other things, is narrow the uh, employer defenses that would exist for explaining or trying to defend against uh, wage disparity claims. Uh, it would also restrict employers from preventing employees who might otherwise discuss wage information. There already are provisions about that in some statutes, but this would elevate that so that employees could discuss wage information among themselves. It would increase civil penalties for employers that violate the provisions. And also, importantly, it would require employers to provide compensation data to the EEOC, which is a federal anti-discrimination agency. Employers would have to break down employee populations by race, sex, and national origin. Again, many of the aspects of that already exist in California and New York. Another really major and important anti-discrimination civil rights uh, provision is something called the Equality Act. And what this would do would prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity on the federal level. Now, by the way, there is no statutory formulation on that uh, topic. Many, many states already have anti-discrimination provisions that touch on sexual orientation and gender identity. But to some extent, this proposed act has been overtaken by events because, as I know you've reported in past shows, uh, the United States Supreme Court in June decided a case called Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. And in that case, the United States Supreme Court decided uh, by interpreting the existing statutory language from Title VII to include anti-discrimination provisions that aren't expressly stated in the statute. So to some extent, the Equality Act has become less of a major priority because the Supreme Court has done the heavy lifting on that already by interpreting existing law to include anti-discrimination provisions based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Despite the CARES Act, a lot of employees right now are having trouble with paid sick and family leave during COVID-19, and there have been a lot of lawsuits filed. How would the Biden administration deal with those on a more permanent level? There uh, is another proposed piece of legislation called the Healthy Families Act, 
that would require employers to provide paid sick leave, which again is already uh, mandatory in California and many other major cities and some other states. Specifically, the bill would require that employers with 15 or more employees would need to provide paid sick leave for employees to use for themselves and their families. And uh, they will earn that at a rate of one hour of paid sick leave for every 30 hours worked. It would require employers with fewer than 15 employees to provide either that rate of of paid sick leave or at least 56 hours of unpaid sick leave. So, uh, again, this would federalize an initiative that already exists on a number of statute books in the state and local levels. Changes in technology will continue to eliminate jobs for many workers. You don't want to stop progress. So how would Biden deal with those kinds of changes? Among other things, if the laws that uh, are proposed, the policies that are proposed by the potential Biden administration get passed, it would require employers that receive federal funds to give employees notice of technology changes and automation uh, that might affect them. Biden would also seek to claw back certain tax benefits and public funding from companies that uh, would offshore American jobs. Some of these there's not a great deal of specificity about, but that is something that uh, clearly is uh, contemplated as well. How much are these proposals like what California already has in law? Well, it's interesting. Some of them are uh, provisions that have been tried and that have failed for one reason or another. For example, one of the important Democratic-backed provisions, which isn't specifically uh, stated in the Biden proposals, but which he presumably would be receptive to, involved the outlawing, essentially, of arbitration agreements in the employment setting, as well as other settings uh, in in some some other contexts as well. But with respect to employment, this means that employers and employees would no longer be able to uh, lawfully enter into arbitration agreements by which a dispute that might be heard now uh, in front of an arbitrator involving discrimination, harassment, wrongful termination, whatever it may be, would have to be heard by a jury. And, of course, that would result in a huge number of increased claims being brought in front of juries all over the country. Uh, I think that would significantly clog courts. But this has been, again, on the wish list, not of unions in this case, but of, um, on the part of trial lawyers who represent employees, because they obviously would much prefer to be in front of a jury in most of these cases, uh, rather than in front of a retired judge or a senior employment law practitioner who typically populate the arbitration ranks. And so one of the statutes that has already uh, passed the House and has support among Democrats in the Senate is something called the Forced Arbitration and Justice Repeal Act, the FAIR Act. And what that would do would make pre-dispute arbitration agreements illegal in California and everywhere else. I say California because we did pass a law a year or so ago, as did New York, to do the same thing, to outlaw arbitration. But those provisions came up against the federal law, the Federal Arbitration Act. And in both instances, federal courts struck down those state laws. So what this would do would federalize that rule which is that there would no longer be any arbitration between employers and employees in these cases. Another major aspect of what some trial lawyers have been advocating for a long time is the elimination of class action waivers, uh, which have, again, become fairly commonplace uh, in California and elsewhere. One of the things that is usually a feature of an arbitration agreement is a provision that states that the employee agrees not to participate or lead a class action or a collective action against the employer. The United States Supreme Court has determined that those are legal 
uh, that rule would be repealed by something called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. One of the provisions in that act states that class action waivers will no longer be enforceable, meaning that employees will be free to file class actions against their employers and to participate in such class actions. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Tony. That's Anthony Ancidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.